You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Romans chapter 12, uh, we're going to be starting in verse 3. Um, last week, Britt walked us through Romans 12, 1 and 2, um, and looking at what does it mean for us to surrender to God's will completely? How do we do that? Some, some tips um, according to Scripture and how to do that. Uh, and really one of the challenges of being obedient to that passage of Scripture is that right, it describes us as offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. And I don't know if you know this, but the biggest challenge about living sacrifices is that they have a tendency to keep crawling off the altar. Uh, and when it comes to us in our own life, that struggle to listen to the will of God, to discern His will, and to be obedient to it is a, a challenge. But if we manage to do that, if we manage to hear the word of the Lord and submit to His will and walk according to His way and be that living sacrifice, uh, the great danger that we face thereafter of being obedient to the will of God is a sense of pride in the fact that we are walking according to the way that God wants us to have. I remember early on um, as a, uh, when I was younger, uh, you know, if you go to youth conferences or rallies and stuff and they have somebody gets up and tells their testimony, what's, what's like pinnacles of, of testimonies at, at conferences? What, what, it, what, what are the main things that show up at people that share testimonies at those kind of things? Huh? Brokenness? They've got a story, right? There's a jaded past. It was I was once I used to live on the streets and I was, you know, I'll show you my hash marks and right, all those kind of things. And then I came to Jesus and life was great and tra- you know, transforming and all that kind of stuff. And me sitting here, you know, little church boy, been in my tra- been in church, you know. I say when I say I had a drug problem, I got drugged to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, sometimes on Thursdays, right? Like that was that was my that was my, you know. Amen to the other preacher kid here that's right on right. Right? So I mean that was my story. So I'm sitting here like listening to these profound, radical stories of these life transformation stuff, and I'm sitting here going, Well, what's my story? Right? Like, you know, Jesus saved me from stealing some bubble gum when I was three. You know what I mean? Like what you know what what is what is that, right? And so, in the midst of that, knowing what God says and saying, like, yeah, this is who I am. From a very, I got, I, I came to saving faith at the age of seven. Grew up in the, uh, in the, the privilege of, of a mom and a dad who deeply loved Jesus and modeled what it looked like to love His Word and spend time uh, in that and serving outside of that and those kind of things. And so, growing up in the dynamic of that. There was this sense of expectation of you are the living sacrifice. You do what God says. You submit to His will. But what I realized is that my testimony uh, would have its profound nature of what God saved me from, not before He saved me, but after He saved me in the dynamic of that, of realizing that the greatest sin that God saved me from, the sin that Jesus died and spent His blood on behalf of Chris Kopp for, was the sin of self-righteousness. The sense that I got it figured out. I've understood. They haven't. I have. Aren't I wonderful? And the longer that you walk with Jesus... So if you came to faith as a young child, or if you came to faith as an adult, the longer you walk with Jesus, the greater the temptation to walk in a sense of self-righteousness, of I figured it out. 
I got it. Look how great I'm doing. That's honestly, that's why reality television is, is a thing. Everybody watches the crazy people and goes, I'm glad I'm not them. Right? That's that's what I mean, that's why people watch those kind of shows, right? Because it's it's a judgment of those outside of ourself and saying, I'm not crazy, they are let's watch a show, you know? So as we think about this uh, threat of that, Paul was not ignorance of that reality too. As he was writing to the diverse church in Rome, he knew that they were going to be uh, Hellenistic Christians and Jewish Christians and educated free person Christians and still in slavery Christians. And there was going to be this dichotomy of tension and stress that would exist in that that would pull people to where there would be these grand temptations for a sense of spiritual pride that ought not be. And that's where we're going to pick up today uh, as we take a look. In Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 3, he says this, For the by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving. The one who teaches... In his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. As last week, as Britt walked us through that passage in the beginning of Romans 12, and we looked at what it means to surrender to God's will, to know His will, and to surrender to His will, today we're going to continue that thought, but in the application of surrender into the greater body of faith. Because one of the natures of self-righteousness is it is all about self. And you've heard me say this before, sociologists have studied Western culture and we are uh, in the vast swath of human history, Western peoples are the most independent human beings that have ever existed on the face of the planet. We think everything revolves around us. Even the things that we think revolve around, you know, I'm I'm thinking of my family or I'm thinking of, you know, uh, other things, still is ingrained in our society and in our cultural norm to think, but do I... Do I want it? Does, it? does it benefit me? Is it to my best interest? And so as we look at what it means to ap- the application of surrendering to the will of God as applies to the greater body of Christ or the church. Have you ever heard somebody use the phrase, laying your yes on the table? You ever heard that phrase before? It's the idea of saying, you know, if... if uh, Uh, a a total surrender of walking in and just saying, all right, here's my yes, now you answer, you ask the question, right? What do you want from me? Here's the yes. Uh, Same idea of if you were to walk up to somebody and you pulled out your checkbook, which is old school, nobody does that anymore, but pulls out your checkbook and you just sign your name on on the line there and you write the date on the top and you don't fill anything out, you tear it out and you hand it to the person. They have the ability to spend that check 
however they want to, right? They can fill out the amount that they wanted to and where that check's going to go to. It's a functional handing them yes to them. When we think of the idea of surrendered will as a surrendered yes to God, it's the idea of waking up every day and saying, God, you've given me another day, obviously, because I woke up. Here's my yes. Now you put the question in front of me and fill it in with my yes. What is it that God wants from me today? What is it? How does He want me to respond according to His will and surrender to that? Before even knowing what it is that He is asking of me, do we make the, the conscious decision to just say yes? In a lot of ways, this is what it looks like when we make vows to a spouse in a wedding service. You have no idea what your marriage is going to look like. You have no idea what challenges are going to come. You have no idea what you know menopause is going to look like or what life is going to look like through childbearing years or trying to build a house with each other. Any of those other kind of stressors that are going to show up in those. And yet, on that day, you look at each other and you make a vow that ultimately says, yes, and I don't know what the questions are yet. It's a pretty profound thing, right? And this act of a surrendered will to God means that we are laying our yes before Jesus and saying, Jesus, I don't know what you're going to ask of me. I don't know what it is that you're going to require of me. I don't know what tomorrow or even today is going to bring. But because I know that it is you that is asking, I'm simply giving you a yes. And then I'm choosing to walk into that yes. And when we say yes to Jesus... It means some dramatic things. It means that our passions have to change. It means that our views have to change. It means that our priorities change. When we surrender our yes, answer to Jesus, the reality of being living sacrifices goes from the theoretical of, yeah, I understand the idea of you know listening to God's will and doing His will, to somehow actually having to do the will of God, to act according to that, to give that in all nuances of life, and it becomes a very radical thing. The challenge for us comes not in thinking that, we're, that we've given our yes to Jesus, but that we've somehow accomplished something in doing that. That we had the wherewithal to, it, we were smart enough to clue in that this way of Jesus was the way to go, that it was the, the best. And oh, those poor souls that didn't figure that out or whatever else, that somehow we have a sense of pride in it. And Paul has a sober warning. That's literally the word that he uses in there. He says, For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. The word that he uses there in Greek is literally the the picture of sobriety. Uh, So each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned us. It literally is a dangerous thing that we can become so drunk with our own pride drunk with our own uh, understanding, our own education, our own ability, that we can become so drunk with it that we don't see that we're putting ourselves as more significant or higher than other people. It's so tempting when we're walking in the Christian life and by all accounts and standards getting our lives cleaned up 
putting, or they're put together and quite frankly, in a lot of ways, better than they were when we weren't living in obedience to Jesus and His commands to then begin to feel that it is really us who did the improving. That it's us that figured out we did the work. We deserve the credit. Our life is going better because I tried harder or I figured it out. Yes, I'm, I'm following the teaching of Jesus and I'm doing those things, but really it was, it was me that somehow accomplished that. And it's a dangerous temptation. Paul uses the image of being drunk with pride and what we need is good, sober judgment. A reality check of our own spirit and of our own attitude and of our own actions. For some people, thinking too highly of themselves actually isn't a problem. In fact, if you're the opposite of that, you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. You think of yourself less highly than you ought. Your self-worth is somewhere around the level of pond scum in your own mind. You don't think very much of yourself. You think, I'm, I'm really worthless, and look at all the screw-ups that I've had. And yeah, Jesus loves me, but I don't really understand that why, and your life is somewhere down around the pits in the midst of that. For others, the temptation is to think of themselves way more graciously and generously and prideful than they ought to. And here's the interesting thing about both of those positions, a low self-esteem and a prideful self-esteem, is both of these responses, self-loathing or prideful arrogance, commit the same offense before God. They both deem the action of God towards you as untrue. Think about that for a moment. There's so much in our, in our world and in our culture that does emphasize pride or addressing low self-esteem. And we, we, you know, we want to try to tip the scale to the other side of those kind of things. But based upon what? It's, it's based upon man's opinion. How we think or how we feel or how things are going for us. Rather than to say... There is something else. If everybody else thinks you're a failure, if everybody else in society, if every other human being in the world thinks you're pond scum, or if every other human being on the face of the planet thinks you are the greatest thing that has ever walked the face of the earth, their opinion actually doesn't matter. The one who made you, his opinion is the one that matters. To think that God is a liar, that He is unwise, that what He has said is untrue. Let me show you specifically in this text what I mean by uh, helping us to see ourselves in light of this. Right? He's, he said, I urge you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. But look at how He pins this around there. Who does God reveal Himself to be in this passage? He is revealed to us as the giver of grace and the author of faith. Look there. He says, For, the, or for through the grace given to me, Paul, so God gave me, Paul, grace, and through that I'm telling you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment as God has allotted to each of you a measure of faith. So God gives grace, God authors faith, and we're sandwiched in the middle of the reality of that. God has given to us 
what we did not deserve. For by the grace given to me and according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, grace can only be given by someone who is under no obligation to give it. Grace can only be given by someone who is under no obligation to give it. Because if they were under an obligation to give it, it's not grace anymore. Right? None of you, when you go to pick up your paycheck, and I know most of you it's a direct deposit thing, but none of you go to them and when they give you the paycheck, you say, you are so gracious to me. Right? Nobody, none of you do that. Why? Because it's my paycheck. Right? I earned this thing. I did the hours. I did the job. I signed the contract. I fulfilled my thing. You give me what you owe me. I did my part. You're doing your part. This is an equal exchange transaction. There's nothing gracious about that. Right? And oftentimes, we live our life in such a way as to somehow imagine that our interaction with God is like a business transaction deal. I do the things... And therefore, I warrant you to act this certain way. This uh, kind of interchange and act of that. But Paul blows that out of the water and he says, Listen, by the grace of God given to me, I'm now going to share with you this truth. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. If there's anybody that could have thought highly of themselves, it's probably Paul, right? PhD of of uh, biblical studies in his own worldview of the uh, you know I mean you know in villages you know somebody will say oh I'm of this last name and everybody's like oh that's mm, you know kind of thing and I mean that's that's he's of that lineage kind of thing like let me tell you who my teacher was let me show you my degree let me show you where I studied I'm all of these kind of things right like I'm the man and then that was before Jesus but then even after Jesus holy cow like he's Paul he's the one who's planted all these churches he's done incredible He's had miracles that have taken place. He can, you know, he can point at his own body and say, let me, let me show you the physical abuse that I have suffered and endured because of my faith in Jesus and because of the belief of the Gospel and the preaching of His Word and all of those kind of things. If there's any way that I can boast, let me show you me. But Paul knows way better than to do that because he says, because of God's grace undeserved to me, Let me tell you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. This evening out of the reality of where we are in relation to each other. That's really the the point of this. Is It's high to who? Are we saying we're comparing ourselves to God? No, it's, it's us judging ourselves against each other. Us looking at the significance of what our life is like in our family structure, in our church structure, in our work structure, in our community, and those kind of things. Grace is given by God and it is unearned, undeserved, unmerited. And it's graciously given. And then he concludes that by saying, according to the measure of faith, literally this a scaled out reality of faith that is assigned by God to you. God reveals in you his worth and His value. He, uh, in Hebrews says that He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Even the fact if we were to say like, well, I mean, uh, you know, look how great I am because I've understood God. You couldn't see if He didn't give you eyes. You couldn't hear if He didn't give you ears. Right? 
it's the it's the the miracle of the gospel of even of faith if we if we sometimes think of well faith is a work itself if you imagine that you've not that you're drowning but that you've already drowned you're literally floating in the water as a as a person that has stopped breathing and the lifeguard jumps in and they grab you and they pull you out to shore and they begin CPR on you and the water comes out of your lungs and you all of a sudden take a breath again None of you begin in that next thing of like, man, didn't I do a good job breathing? I mean, it would be crazy to think of that, right? As though somehow, in the midst of that, you managed to save yourself. If that miracle of faith had not been granted to you by God, and His generosity and His loving kindness... Even the act of faith is not something that we get to boast in. And so God reveals Himself to be the giver of grace and the author of faith within us. And so through that, what has God done? He has given us what we did not deserve, grace, and has truly evaluated what He deems we are made for. A measure of faith. God has looked at you and seen the real you. It's one of my favorite, I call them dumb Jesus questions. There's times where Jesus asked questions, and you read it and you're like, that just seems like a dumb question. Kind of like God asking Adam in the garden, Adam, where are you? As if God doesn't know where he was, right? And there's, there's these times where, uh, I think it was... Um, Luke's sermon a couple weeks ago where he, he preached about the woman uh, that was you know, at Jesus' feet. And he asked that question. He says, Simon the Pharisee, do you see this woman? That's a dumb Jesus question, right? She's right there, right? Do you see this woman? But was he asking, do you actually see her with your eyeballs? No, he was asking, I don't think you actually see her. And I actually see her. See, Jesus actually sees you everybody else around you sees the you that you try to let them see, right? The Instagram you, the Facebook you, right? The, the you that as much as we can pretend has it together. The, the you that uh, as much as we can put out there for other people to see never struggles or never has doubt or never has fear, any of those kind of things. And we want the world to see we're, we're strong, we're independent, we're great, we're doing okay. But when God looks at us, He sees... <clears throat> the actual you and the you that He made you for. And the gap between those two is the process of sanctification. The real you as you are right now and the you that you will be into eternity that He will sanctify and transform you to into eternity. And this is what He says when He looks at us and He says, He gives to you according to the measure of faith that He gives to you. That's the, that's the word that he, he uses there. God knows you better than you do. He knows what you're capable of. He knows what you can and can't handle. Sometimes we might feel like we want to get in an argument with God about those kind of things. Like, God, <laughs> you got way more trust in me than I got in me. right? God remembers all of your story. And we actually only remember a perspective of our story. So what uh, God has done for us as disciples of Jesus is that He has reclaimed 
what we, what we squandered by giving us Jesus and His righteousness, that's grace, and has looked at the reality of who we are and has measured our faith according to His assigning, according to His understanding, according to His clarity of who we are. And because of who God is and what He's done, being the giver of grace and the author of faith and the one who uh, gives to us what we don't deserve and and, uh, enables in us the reality of what He has made us to be, in light of that, the question for us now is, who am I and what am I to do in light of who He is and what He's done? That's always the question. I've, I've actually given you four Bible study questions. You can take every time, anytime you open up God's Word, you can ask four questions after you read a passage of Scripture and you can understand what God is saying to you. Who is God? What has God done? Therefore, who am I and what am I to do? That's the, that's the format of this. Who am I and what am I to do in light of who He is and what He's done? Paul says, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So what does that mean? What does that mean to think of ourselves with sober judgment? Paul answers this. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. What's the most important part of the body? What do you think would be the most important part of the body? The heart? The brain? Okay. If I took the brain out, can the body still live? No. If I take the heart out, can the body still live? No. What else? Kidneys, those are pretty... Anybody that's ever had kidney failure, that's a, that's a pretty important thing. How about skin? Anybody want to live without skin? No, they're all pretty important chunks of the body, right? They're all pretty significant. Now, are there parts of the body that we can lose and still function as the body? Yeah. Do we want to lose those things? Not really, right? Unless it's like the appendix and it's giving us some trouble or something, you know? But like generally speaking, even if we lose those things, a finger or a hand or a leg we can still function but we're not whole and we're scarred and to small extents or greater extents we're limited right god fearfully and wonderfully designed the human body to do incredible things i mean it's it's so crazy to me every now and again i'll see news articles where they literally are finding new organs in the human body like this last year, they found a new, uh, a new organ in the pericardium sac of the human heart that was a different layer that's a totally different organ than the rest of the pericardium sac. And they never knew that it was there. And we're going like, how long have we been taking human bodies apart and trying to figure out all the parts and how all the things work? And we're just finding all these crazy, new, incredible aspects of the human body. So as we think of all of these things, yes, we can live without some parts of the body, but it's debilitating, it's scarring, and it's limiting. The interconnectedness of Christ followers is actually quite astounding when you think about it. As you think about the way that we as 
Christians interact with each other. Because of Jesus, because we are one body in Him, it really is astounding. Let me just put it to you this way. Missiologists that study global missions and things like that uh, have made a pretty uh, stark reality change. You've probably heard me say this before, that uh, in the last 100 years, a huge shift has happened within global Christianity. For about uh, 900 years, or give or take, if you took every Christian in the world and you averaged them into one human being, you ended up with a, uh, um, a white male in his early 30s living in Europe. That was, that was about the average world Christian for about 800 years, from about 1000 uh, A.D. up until about 1900 A.D. But in the last 100 years of, of time span, that has shifted to where today, if you average every Christian in the world into one human being, it's about a 14-year-old African girl living in sub-Saharan Africa. That's the average Christian in the world today. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what it's like to live in sub-Saharan Africa. I, I mean, other than what I've seen on like National Geographic, which I've lost lots of opinion about National Geographic after I've seen some of the reality shows that they've put out. But I have some ideas about what it would be like to be an individual that lives in that kind of an environment, specifically a, a teenage girl that's living in that kind of, an, I, you know, that kind of a, a world and what that looks like. But here's what I want you to understand about the, interconnected, uh, the interconnectivity nature of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. Today, right now, you have more in common with that African teenage girl who loves Jesus than you have with your coworker in your own department who has the same political affiliation with you who does not love Jesus. You have more in common with that teenage girl than you do with the person that looks just like you except they just don't love Jesus. Because in the grand scheme of God's created order into eternity, sub-Saharan African girl and you are going to look a whole lot more like each other into eternity than you and that coworker who does not love Jesus. And we don't think of that. We think along the lines of uh, tribalism or you know similarity or do they like the same movies that I like or do they interact you know, do they vote the same that I do or do they understand the same work environment or those kind of things and Christianity is not that way it was never designed to be that way we though many are one body but secondly he says individually we are members one of another Does the body need the hand more than the hand needs the body? Does the body need the hand more than the hand needs the body? Well, we see lots of bodies walking around that are amputees without the hand. We don't see any hands walking around. It's not cousin it, right? Running along there. The hand needs the body. Way more than the body needs the hand. And this is where he's saying, we are, we together are interconnected of this. And this is the great danger. This is why I bring up this idea of independent 
individualism as such a big issue is because it bursts this idea that I can just be a follower of Jesus by myself. I don't need anybody else. I don't need the church. I don't need other believers. It's just Jesus and me against the world. And there is no representation of that in Scripture. A handoff by itself in the middle of the parking lot is actually called a grime scene. Right? It's a horror. It's not good. We're made to be interconnected. We need each other. And distinctly, we don't all do the same things. Right? That's the beauty of the church. We don't all do the same thing. We're all wired the same way. It's not uniformity. It's just unity in diversity. It's a pretty profound thing. Again, I keep going back to this illustration of the human body. When, uh, when sperm and egg meet and come into that one new cell and it creates those stem cells which are basically have all the same DNA structure in them but they're all designed and they all look the same, they all function the same until all of a sudden God does something incredible with those stem cells and they start the same cell starts going right Start making kidney cells. Alright, let's start making brain cells. Alright, let's start making bone cells. And starts cranking these things out out of the same thing. It's one spirit, one uniting gospel, one reality of Jesus Christ, and yet it produces the diversity that we see in the room today. That's pretty incredible. Not something we should lose. Our yes in Jesus not only connects us to His grace, but it also connects us to the rest uh, of other grace receivers. One of the reasons why we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought is because we realize we need grace and we don't demean other people because they need grace the same as we do. The rich, the poor, the spiritual, the unspiritual, we all come to the Lord's table to receive His grace on equal terms. Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Notice that God gives us grace, but it produces different gifts within us. He says, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if prophecy... We did the new members class a couple weeks ago and had people doing a spiritual gifts inventory, just looking at some of these kind of things. Okay, how am I wired? And what, you know, what do I naturally do? And what is my gifting and those kind of things? The first gift that he uses there, that he describes there, translates prophecy. The first gift is inspired gospel preaching. When we say prophecy, again, it's one of those words that gets thrown around, you know. Movies, sci-fi movies will say, you know, this is the child of the prophecy. And it was some old guy way back when said this particular thing. And, and so now, you know, Luke Skywalker is the one that's going to bring, you know, equality to the force. You know, that's, that's, the prophet, that's what prophecy is, right? But the Bible, there is some of that. But for the most part, when the Bible talks about prophecy, it is not foretelling, but forthtelling. God has thus said... Here's the truth of the reality of that. And we see that here. He says, if your gifting is to speak the truth of God, let it come from or in proportion to or measured by the faith. This is not, preaching should never be about opinion. You know, Chris Cop's five steps to a better you or whatever else. It's saying this is measured according to what God's word says. 
He is the architect of this reality. And so as we foretell truth, we are foretelling it from and proportion to and connected to our faith, is what he says there. This preaching is to be according to our faith and not according to our opinion or according to the whims of the cultural world as it, uh, as it exists. It's one of the reasons why I love reading old dead guys and reading about the challenges of the culture in which they were trying to speak these same truths that have been handed down from generation to generation of gospel-believing Christians. And the reality of it is all of them had cultural winds that were trying to push their sails away from the truth of the gospel into all kinds of error, into all kinds of uh, mess. And so this gift to individuals is for the church. The gift of prophecy is not for me to say, well, cool, I'm a prophet. I get to label myself on something. It's to give it away to other people to encourage them in this faith, in this truth. So having received the gift that differ according to the grace given to us, we use it and it manifests itself in first in prophecy in proportion to our faith. Second, in service if service, if the gift is service, in our serving. The word that is used here is uh, uh, diacona. It's the word that we get. Anybody hear that? Diacona? Diacona? Anybody want to make a guess what we translate that into in English? Deacon. It's the term for deacon. And it literally means just Minister. See why this is the this is the challenge of language of stuff because I you know if I introduce and they say what do you do for a living I got all kinds of things I can say I'm a pastor I'm a preacher I'm a missionary uh, I'm a parson uh, you know I'm a you know whatever uh, I, I'm a minister I can use all of those terms they're all most of those are Bible terms some of those are just really funky old English words but to say somebody is a minister and somebody is a pastor doesn't necessarily biblically mean gifting-wise the same thing. That's why we translate it service, if serving, serve. If, if your gifting is to see needs, then step into those. And we'd say, well, that just seems really like a bad writing. If serving, then serve. Uh, it's him saying, put your whole heart into it. If God's gifted you to see needs within the body of believers or through the nature of the ministry of the church, then do it and minister in that way. Step into it. Embrace that. Do it with your whole heart. Serve. And don't think less of yourself because you're not. And see how he followed it? The prophecy is like a front up front. The, you know, we always think the person in charge is the one speaking. And he says, don't think of that less because you're not the one up front speaking, if your gift is serving, then serve with your whole heart. Step into it. The one who teaches in his teaching. This is the teaching of Christian doctrine. It's the same word that is used there when it describes uh, the apostles' teaching that they were passing on from house church to house church as they were expanding that work. It wasn't just preaching. It was literally sitting down and walking through the nuances of what Scripture taught and how the Christian life was to be lived and how the Gospel applied into all new aspects of life and things like that. Taking the truth of Christian doctrine, a task seen as distinct from preaching and service. 
Preaching is forth-telling what God has said. It's taking God's Word and preaching it to there. Teaching is walking with people in the truth of nuances of how Scripture applies into their life and understanding how does the fullness of Scripture play into you as a parent? How does the fullness of Scripture play into you as a dating individual? How does the fullness of Scripture play into your finances or all those kind of things? And somebody that walks in, that is, who teaches... They exhibit their grace given to them to the body by teaching. To the one who exhorts in his exhortation. Exhorts, or exhortation is a fancy Bible word. You know, probably none of you guys tweeted that recently. Uh, but it's a fancy Bible word for the one who acts as a wise counselor. The exhorter is the one that you look to for advice you know that that's somebody that you can trust what they say. It comes with experience. It's like the elders have been viewed in our villages for hundreds of years. They were the ones that knew what was going to happen. They knew how the rhythm went. And so people went to them and asked, what do you think? Is this good? Is this bad? Should we try this? Should we not try this? They came with experience and they could give a good word. That's the same picture of this. This is one who can read the situation well and can give good counsel. The exhorter is not an immature person. The exhorter is not a flippant person. The, the exhorter is one that sometimes when people say, what do you think? Their first response is, I don't know. Let me think about it. Let me pray over it. But then when they come back, they come back with authoritative encouragement, authoritative counsel to speak truth into that. And for some people, they would look at that and say, well, I don't like what you had to say. Well, then you're the fool. Because they thought carefully and delicately around the nature of what it is that, they, that you came seeking their counsel for. It's the same root word, exhorter is the same root word that Jesus uses uh, when He describes the role of the Holy Spirit. He says that it is good that I should go away to you, for if I do not go, then the Father cannot send the Helper, the Paraclete, the Counselor to you. Exhortation is what the Holy Spirit does in our life when the Holy Spirit reveals to us truth, reminds us of Scripture, convicts us of sin, and shows us how to live the life that we're called to do. And it's an incredible thing that God says of some people, He's given them to the church as a physical embodiment of what the Holy Spirit does as an exhorter to speak wise counsel into their life. If that's you, don't squander that. Step into other people's lives and share wise counsel. To the one who contributes in generosity, this is the philanthropist. Now, when we say philanthropist, oftentimes we think of somebody that's rich. No. The one who contributes is the one that is intentionally giving, that sees physical needs and meets those needs in generosity. That's the action that he says there. This can show up in, uh, I think, in three different ways. This can show up, generosity shows up in the Christian life in time, in talents, and in treasure. Not just treasure. The one commodity that every human being uh, gets is time. You can't earn any more of it. You can't, you know, all you can do is waste it. And so it is a generous thing to be generous with time. 
that it is also a time or a thing that is very generous if you are talented in some capacity to give generously in that. And the church needs people that are wired up in this. That see needs and physically meet those needs by their own means. To the one who leads, he says, with zeal. Some people don't have to try to lead. It's just in their wiring. I'm one of those weird people. Never, I've never, never been scared of leading. Never been scared to try to step to the front or say something. But sometimes they do have to try to lead with zeal. Yep, I can lead. Do I want to? If God has given you a, an ability to lead, to be that, that person of gravitas, when, you're, when you start to speak and other people stop what they're saying and turn and what do they have to say, right? There's an old leadership principle um, from a, a, a Christian author a number of years back and he, he was talking about new pastors going into churches uh, and he said, you need to look for the bell cow. And so if you think of a herd of cows, there would always be one that was always the one that leads the pack and they would put a bell on that cow and that cow as it walked, the bell would ring and the other cows would follow it. And there's always somebody in every group, there's somebody that they're the, you know, somebody asks a question, everybody turns and looks at so and so. And if they do that with you and you're like, oh, I don't want to do it. In your leading, do it with zeal. Because the church needs you. The church needs you. And then finally, in this little section that he has there, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. If you're wired for mercy, like you're, you've got kind of uh, emotional antenna up and you, just, you can feel the hurts of people. And you just want to, you know, make it better. You want to serve them and, and make, you know, make it not as hard. That's mercy, helping alleviate something in their life. The greatest danger of being a person of great mercy uh, is that you can lose your joy of the mercy. We oftentimes call it compassion fatigue. It just gets really tiresome. There's a lot of hurt out there. And he says, listen, if that's it, if one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, Lord, let me not lose the joy of that. Let me keep getting, let me, let me just, let me, let me try to alleviate the suffering in some way and let me continue to find joy and satisfaction in that reality. When we surrender our yes to Jesus, it has implications that are far and beyond us. To surrender to His will in the, in the one sense of becoming that living sacrifice is the act of believing the Gospel. It's God saying, I have a will for your life that supersedes your will and so we surrender and we say yes to the Gospel realizing we were dead in our sins and Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and He reconciled us, the Father. That's an incredible experience and it's a personal one. It's not something anybody else can do for you. But the individual nature of our redemptive miracle in Jesus quickly moves beyond just us to the greater body of Christ. That when we surrender our yes to Jesus, it oftentimes uh, looks like us saying yes to Him in some capacity that blesses 
the greater body so that the church can be the body of Christ. That the hand can do what the hand needs to do. And the eye can do what the eye needs to do. The foot can do what the foot needs to do. That the pastor can do what the pastor needs to do. That the the child worker can do what the child worker needs to do. That the Bible study leader can accomplish the task of that. That the missionary sent out from the body uh, into an unreached place can do what it needs to do. That the jobs that need to get done can get done. That the leadership that needs to be in place can be in place. That the body of Christ can be the body of Christ to a world that is asking the question, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And the scariest part about being a church is the answer we're supposed to give is, look here. Look here. And the world should see Jesus. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.